Uh, welcome to Cornerstone. I saw a couple people I've never seen before, but uh, welcome. Uh, it's your first time. We're, we're glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of us today. Um, we're in the book of Isaiah. And so if you got your Bibles today, you can open up to the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to be mainly in Isaiah 63 today. So if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have some. Um, there's some people bringing Bibles down. You can just raise your hand and we'd be happy to put a Bible in your hand. If you don't have one, we'll also be putting stuff up on the screen. So anyways, just, uh, just know that we're, we're, we're excited to have you here. Um, we started this summer just going through the book of Isaiah, mainly just because as I was reading that book and kind of as we were all talking about it, there's this special way in which Isaiah just lands this reality out amongst the people that he's writing to about this idea of him having a vision. Now, oftentimes when we think about a vision, we think like a vision quest, or we think about like some guy's eyes rolling back into the back of his head, and suddenly out of his mouth comes some, you know, bizarre, wild thing. But I don't think this is the vision that Isaiah is talking about. Instead, the vision that Isaiah is talking about is a way of seeing the world correctly. And I thought of any time like that time, now is a time where I would say God's church needs to see the world like God sees the world. As I look around at so many followers of Jesus and so many churches, I feel like we're like weirdly forgetting the reality that our God from the very beginning to the very end is in absolute control and there's nothing outside of his control as he moves his purpose and his plan throughout time in the exact way, in the exact form with the same people or the exact people that he intends to. And he's going to bring everything that is going on right now in the world to a wonderful conclusion that is actually a beginning where we will spend an eternity in the world that God intended for his people. In other words, we need to see things rightly. We need to see it rightly, because like I said last week, and I would even say this, you know, just Terry said it's been a heavy week for us around here at Cornerstone, is it just gets tiring living in this world. It's tiring just from the standpoint that there's evil all around us. We're constantly bombarded by loss. We're constantly bombarded by pain and suffering and difficulty. And right now you're probably wondering, man, is Todd depressed? No. That's just the world that we live in. And it's hard. And this is what Isaiah does, is he springs in here. And last week, if you remember right, what he did was he, he launched off, and, and we were looking at the very end of it, because we've only got one more week left in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 56 through 66, he's trying to give us something that is so huge and so big, and he's bringing all of the book of Isaiah to a close. And if you remember right, in those chapters, he, he builds a, a chiasm, which again, isn't a disease that you need amoxicillin to get over. It's just a way in which at that time they wrote things to help you understand how important important something was. This section of Isaiah 56 through 66 is loaded with poetry and prose and prayers. It's just loaded with information trying to draw in from you all of the stuff that Isaiah's written in Isaiah 3 through 55. And at the very center of it is this announcement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in which finally everything that we have longed for is going to finally come to pass and we will now live in the intended world that God had for us. And he starts off and he talks about this, and this is really important to where we're going today, so pay attention. 
is in the midst of it, he lays out two realities about what God's kingdom looks like. And there's going to be people now, his point being his kingdom is going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's going to include both males and females. It's going to include people of differing abilities. That when God builds his kingdom, it is going to be so diverse of peoples from all over the globe. But it's going to be a powerful reality. We're all going to be a part of a covenant family. This is what he's trying to argue on the outside. Now, as he moves in, and this is what we're going to start looking at today, the problem is, though, as we know this, there's the wicked he's going to talk about, and he's going to contrast and compare the wicked and those that are his servants. Let's just call them God's people for right now. He's also, and this is what we're also going to look at today, there's these two beautiful prayers. If you get a chance to look at them, we're not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to kind of briefly touch into a little bit of it today in Isaiah 63. But these prayers of repentance where God's people come before him and they see the world, they see his people and they're just broken. In fact, I would say this, in the midst of brokenness, the church shouldn't worry and fret. The church shouldn't get caught up in all kinds of things. We should follow in the path of Isaiah and we should cry out to this incredible God. This is what he's, he's modeling for us. Is that in the end, as God's people look around and they see what's going on, they cry out to him. And at the very center of it that we looked at last week, and I, I hope you caught the gist of it. If we as God's people, I believe, can get a... a vision, a glimpse of what the world is intended to be, it will sustain us and change us and make us different because I believe that the extent to which you live in this world for God, the extent to which you live with passion and vigor and understanding is the same vision you have for what God has for us one day in his future kingdom. We have to increase that and that's who we are. But let's do this first. We're going to look at kind of this, this idea, though, of what goes on around it. But let me, let me, let me start in chapter 62. Let, let's take a running start into this idea of looking at repentance. Let's look at even God's wrath. We're going to look at some of that today. But let's get a running start into it. Look at Isaiah 62.10, if you've got that in your Bibles. But let, let, let's walk through that. Now watch. He says in there, go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up the signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, which if you remember right, that's just God's people. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city, not forsaken. Now, what he's laying out for us, and this is so important, especially for those of you that have walked with Jesus for a little while, sometimes what you can feel like is you can feel like an outcast. So in other words, within our culture in the United States, we take stands, let's say, around something like abortion, where we would just say to our world that what we believe is, is that to take a life of somebody inside of his mother's womb is fully and, 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 and absolutely Awfully, and again, if, if you've had this before, just understand, but this is the vision of it. It is, it is sin. It is murder. Now, our world looks at us like we're crazy. No, what are you talking about? It's a choice. We look like we're crazy. 
We come along and we have a heart for all people. We don't care who they are or what they've battled through because we understand that we're all sinners in need of the desperate or we're desperate for the grace of Jesus Christ. But we do look around and we see things like sexuality that is outside of the confines of, a, of marriage between a man and a woman. And we look at that to our world and we say, oh, this is not the way that God designed it. There's so much more. And we look at, at this and people look at us and they think we're crazy. We look at life and we, we frame it in and around a world that's created by God and they tell us, no, you're crazy. It was created by happenstance. And we look crazy. The point at the end of 62 is, is that at some point, we as Christians will not look crazy. When Jesus Christ returns one day to reign, all of his people now will be the ones that won't look crazy at all. I don't care if your end is, is premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or if you don't even know again what I said last week, what these words even mean. There is coming a day when all of us who are followers of Jesus that at times struggle and strain and feel like we're such outcasts, God will vindicate that moment when every knee bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. I promise you at that moment, no one will think that we're stupid. And he says, that's where it's all moving. But the question is, though, and here's what he's going to try to now answer, is how do we get there? Because one of the most difficult questions for us as Christians to answer is, is that's great and I want to get there, but how does God rid his good world of evil? How does that even take place? See, I think deep within us, if, if this is the main point this week, we're going off of a question which is, and this is what I think Isaiah is going to answer beautifully, is how does God cleanse his world of evil? How in the world do we get from this point now to a point in which there will be no longer any death, any suffering, any evil? How does God do that? And this whole idea that we're going to try to kind of work through, this answer is out of three different things. I'm going to answer the first two kind of this week, and then we're going to do the, the last one the next week. But I think, one, you're going to meet this person that we kind of referenced last week, the warrior the, that's going to come, and he's going to come in this idea of wrath. Now, again, when I say the word wrath, a lot of people are like, whoa. But I hope at the end of this you go, oh my gosh, I am so glad I understand wrath in a different way. We're going to talk about it through the suffering servant sacrifice of Isaiah 53. And we're going to talk about it through the repent humble servant's service. So we're going to try to answer this question, how is God going to cleanse his good world of evil? How is this going to take place? Now the other thing that we have to remember, kind of going into it though, is we've got to remember, and again, if anybody wants me to sign my art at the end of this, I will totally do it because this is really good stuff. We got to remember how Isaiah is seeing this. He's going to answer the question for us, how does God rid his world of evil? But he's answering it from the standpoint of a, a perspective. And so in one perspective, he's seeing that there's this first coming of this suffering servant in which he will come back and make all things right between humanity and God. We also see a second coming, and, and Isaiah doesn't really answer when. He just says, look, this is what's going to take place. And it, it sometimes looks like it all kind of curls together, and we're not sure how it is because he's, he's looking off at it at a distance. But there's coming a day in which a warrior will come back and set all things straight. But he's also going to talk about God's people, this group of people that are called to join him in what he's doing in this earth. So let's go with it. Let's try to answer this question of how is it that he's going to do this. Well, last week we were in Isaiah 59, 17. If you got your Bibles, you can go there. 
But he talked about this, this warrior that was putting on the armor that was going to take place for him to come back to this world. And God was going to now, if you look at it this way, he was going to come back and render, look at the very end, repayment. Now, here's one of the first things we have to understand about this warrior that is coming. No one will escape. Now, if you've ever been somebody that wondered, man, what, you know, I think Hitler got away with it because he just committed suicide. Let me tell you something. Hitler didn't get away with anything. If you think somehow somebody got away with it, whether even the, the guy that just recently, you know, got, got busted for things in regards to, to children and what he was doing to children, he won't get away with anything. And the idea is, is that nobody anywhere gets away with anything. This warrior that is coming back, that's going to bring himself now upon this world, and no one will escape his justice. And let me just say this, as followers of Jesus Christ, on one end, it is terrifying and it is awful what it's going to bring. But aren't you glad that no one escapes justice? Now, not only that, but there's a Redeemer that's going to come to Zion, and there's going to be something special, though, because God also is going to deal with justice from a different angle. Now, what he's going to do in 63.1 is he's going to answer two questions that are really important to where we're going as we understand how God is going to rid his world of evil. One is when he's looking at this warrior that's going to come, he's going to say to him, who is this? Now, just think about that for a second. In looking at who this is in the back of his head, he's going to ask the question, who is this? I think it's the question people have been asking about God. It's what people have been asking about Jesus Christ for years and years and years. Who, who is this? And the other one, though, that's kind of hard for us to kind of grapple with is this idea, why is your apparel red? Does everybody see that in verse 2? Why is your apparel red? Well, in this, it's Isaiah, and the reason he's even asking this is he's asking it from the standpoint in Isaiah 62.6 of this guy that's a watchman, and he's really asking this question that's so huge. He's asking, is this a friend or a foe? He's guarding and warning. He's going, who is this that's now coming to Jerusalem or Judah in his vision? Who, who is this one? And he says to him, who comes from, here's a word, Edom, is in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in greatness of his strength. It is I, he says, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, let's, let's understand who this is. Well, this one that's coming from Edom is, is a country that is just south of Jerusalem. And let me throw a map up there because maps are so cool. But Jerusalem lies to the north of what's called Edom, and the capital city is Basra. Now, in Isaiah 34 and also throughout like Genesis, we start to understand who these people are for Edom. And if you've ever read the book of Genesis before, or even if you haven't, let me just explain it to you. There's this guy named Esau who was supposed to receive the birthright, and instead, because of a, basically a bowl of soup, another guy received it, Jacob, or who we find out later to be his brother, the brother that basically took his birthright. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, what we find is the Edomites hated the Israelites. They despised them. They despised their God. And so what you start to feel throughout this is, is this particular group of people becomes kind of the, the, the characterization of all people that have ever hated God's people and hated God. And the whole point is this warrior is coming back from this place and he's coming back from the place of a group of people that have hated him. Now, not only that, and there's more, and let's just, we're going to geek out on a little information here for just a second, then we'll land it. But their name is Edom. 
Now, Adam is very close to this other word, Adam, that we find for just humanity. Meaning, in this characterization, the picture that Isaiah sees is this warrior that is walking through all of humanity and seeing everything. Now, why is that so important? Because in the midst of the chaos of the world that we live in, it is so important to understand our God sees everything. There is nothing outside of his vision. The idea is this one walking with x-ray vision throughout the world and seeing the chaos and the tumult and the downsides of just living in a fallen world. He's seeing it and experiencing it. And not only is he amongst it, but we see this. He's in splendid apparel, meaning he's regal and he's royal. There's something about him in which he is a king. And he's marching in this greatness and strength towards Isaiah in this vision coming at him. And Isaiah, as he looks at him, starts to understand exactly who he is. He isn't just anybody. He is regal. And in fact, when the one starts to speak that comes at him, this warrior, he says, not his name, but he says, it is I. Now, anybody that knows anything about the Old Testament is that God had a phenomenal way to say, when you're asking who I am, it is I. You can just tell in there that Isaiah, as this watchman, is looking at this, and this one who is now crimson garment, and he's walking through all these people of humanity and seeing everything, it is Yahweh. And it's Yahweh who he says in there is righteous. He's, he's fully able to see things like they're supposed to be seeing. There's a historical reality to it. But don't miss this one last word that we're going to come back to. It's actually three words, but it's just one word in Hebrew, mighty to save. That's huge. That's the first question. Who is he? Now, the second question becomes really important for us is that we understand that this is Yahweh, which we'll learn, and this is just a spoiler alert. This is actually Jesus himself, we believe, that's coming, this, this servant that's the warrior king. But he also says in there, look at verse 2, why is your apparel red? Now, on one level, right, he's like confused, and I love this. And your garment's like those who treads in the wine press. You know, he's like, hey, have you been making a little wine? I mean, none of us would have said that, but you got to put yourself back at that time. Why is it that your garments are so crimson red? I don't get it. What's going on? Now, I'm about to read to you something that I want you to understand on some levels. It is so heavy and so stark And we so don't know what to do with it because it is so heavy and so stark. But it's a reality of our God as he looks at evil within this world. And it just comes to this point where we understand our God is determined to remove all evil from his world. All of it. And this is what he says. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in, look at this word, anger. Trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of, my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold, meaning I was the only one that could do it. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. And here's it. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Wow. 
I would say most times we avoid this image of God, don't we? Because we don't know what to do with it. There's this side of God that I would even say, not only do we try to maybe hide it in some ways, is that we're kind of almost, whenever it comes up, because we don't know what to do with it, we're embarrassed by it. But I would say this, and especially, let me just say this in regard to those that are under the age of, say, 25. This is going to become a vastly important question for them to answer that they currently, I would say right now, aren't ready to give an answer because we live in a culture in a time in which the only way we characterize God is around this one word, which is love, which is an absolutely true statement. First John tells us that God is love, but God is more than just love. He's not less than that, but he is more than that. God is also holy, and he is just, and he is other. And God in his holiness and his love will bring about wrath. Now again, we don't know what to do with that. Well, One of the first definitions I ever saw for wrath, and I hope this helps you to kind of grapple with this so we can not only understand it ourselves and be blown away by just the goodness of God and cleansing his world of all evil, but I hope you can begin to understand it so you can not only understand it, but to be able to explain it. And this is a guy named John Stott, and he's one of the best ones I ever saw on this. Now just go with me. God's wrath does not mean that he's likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God, nor is he ever irascible, uh, leave it to the English to make us feel stupid, malicious, spiteful, vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable because it's provoked by evil and by evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger is injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. In other words, God is angry at evil. He hates it. He knows that in order for his intended purpose and creation to ever come about, evil must be permanently and completely eliminated from this world. Now, a lot of the difficulty, and I just want to leave that up for just a second of us, is that we don't see this part of God, his desire for his people to finally have the world that is rid of all the evil that has caused so much problems and pain. Remember I told you it's kind of been a rough week for us around here at Cornerstone? In order for us to experience the world that God's created for us, there can be no longer any longer death. In order for us to experience the world that God has intended for us, there can be no longer any pain. In order for us to experience the world that God has for us, there can be no sickness, there can be no crying, there can be no, and this is what I would also say, people that have ever stood and opposed God in their arrogance. The reality of the gospel, the good news of understanding the greatness of God and what he's doing in this world is he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. He is over all things and any that have had the audacity to shake their fist at him and deny who he is, he will one day come back and they will experience his wrath. That's heavy. Especially this morning, I was thinking about three friends of mine 
gosh, I've tried desperately to share Jesus with him to understand the message I'm about ready to share with you here in just a second. I've pled with them. I've cried out to them. For years, we have talked in and through the reality of this great and this wonderful God who is loving. He's full of love, but he's also holy and just. And if they don't bend the knee to this God, they are not going to run into a grandpa up in heaven that is simply up there with his teeth not in his mouth, kind of counting the hours as the world passes away. They are going to run into the warrior that is Jesus, and they don't want to do that. It's an image of Jesus and God we kind of don't know what to do with. But we, on one level, we're broken by it, but we want it. I don't want to stay in a world that has death and pain any longer. Do you? I don't want to live in a world that's broken and falling. I don't want to live in a, a world with children that won't obey. <laughs> I don't want to live. I, I, I'm kidding. Mine are perfect. Um, I, I don't want that. The longing of every human being in every system, whether it's capitalism or socialism, the longing of every human being is to finally live in that place of safety and comfort and security that's found only in one place, and that is when the warrior servant comes back and eliminates all evil that has ever stood against God because evil and all of those consequences of it will remain unless Jesus gets rid of it. And this is what he's talking about. Now, the reason I say that it's Jesus is we find it one day in Revelation 19 when it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Meaning here's this image, especially when they talk about the one who's in righteousness, which is a reference probably back into Isaiah that we're looking at. Revelation 6, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And with him, he strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, a reference to Isaiah. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Nobody will escape bowing their knee to him. And that's good. We want King Jesus to reign. Now, as we talk about it next week, this is why it's so important that we as the church be the proclaimers of the gospel, of the kingship, and the rule and the reign of Jesus, and the proclamation of the good news of his rescue. We have to proclaim that to the world. We can't keep silent. It's what I said last week we're his only plan, we're it. And he's now telling the world, you don't want to bend your knee then. Because in it, look at verse 29, you will run into a God who's a consuming fire. Now let me just speak to those of you that may not know Jesus that are sitting here today. What I'm about ready to say coming up is so important for you to hear. Because that is definitely an aspect, a picture, one of the attributes of our God that he is holy and he's other and he doesn't toy around with evil. But in this, this one who's the consuming fire, he's also this one who's going to come looking amongst humanity. And in looking amongst humanity, he also sees a broken world that he's not just going to let sit in its brokenness. Our God is determined to fix this brokenness, and he's going to call you to himself. 
See, this wrath of God that you feel, and everybody feels that, I don't care who we are, that's revealed from heaven, he said, against all ungodliness and righteousness. This is a guy named Paul, who was one of the first apostles inside of the church. Is that now out there in this world, we know something's wrong with our world, don't we? We know it doesn't feel right. We know that somehow in this, and and it was interesting, I was talking to a guy about this even this morning, we know that there's just confusion. It almost feels like the Tower of Babel again where everybody wonders what's true and what's not true. We live in a world, just in the United States, I was thinking about this the other day, nobody gets along anymore unless you agree. Have you ever noticed that? I, I turned on the news and I gotta quit doing this. I turn on the news and there's just two people just and I wanted to take like a video of it and go, this is the world in which we now live. See, in an interesting way in the book of Romans, the reason you feel that way is that humanity, God says, as they begin to pursue life apart from God and the good kingship and the, and, and the lordship of who he is, God will begin to pull himself back and allow cultures and societies to experience the reality of what they're really after. If you want to go after it, God says, go get it. And this is what Paul means by his wrath is being revealed. It starts to feel wrong. Something's not right in it. And not only that, but it's telling us, and all of us here as followers of Jesus Christ, is that it's storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, every time that we hear that, I feel like we as a church start to go, oh, this is awful, and what are we going to do? And it is awful. But all it is is a reminder and a, a, a foretaste of this reality that God is going to come back one day. And this is what's going to happen. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 3 that when he does finally come back into this world in which he's slowly pulled himself back, is it will be too bad for wicked sinners, for they will get exactly what they deserve. Now, again, I know some of you are like, man, give us the good news, man. What's good about this? The good news in this is is that this wicked world, while it's tossed like the sea and cannot be quiet, its waters are mire and dirt because there is no peace, is that eventually, though, there's something that's about ready to happen. This is what's going on, I think, within the United States. About every hundred years or so, and the way that I would depict it is like a fault line is that our culture and our society just starts to pull like a fault line. It starts to kind of pull itself apart. God, as he begins to pull himself back and let humanity have what it wants. And I would say we're hitting one of those unique times right now in our country and in our culture, potentially even our world. That fault line is just stressing against itself. I also think that fault line at any moment could just go coon and everything could go chaotic and all around that we were going, what in the world are we going to do? But here's the greatest news in the world. About every 500 years even, we'll see as that fault line begins to break, every time it breaks, something amazing happens behind it called revival. I look around at our world and I see Christians going, what are we going to do? And I'm sitting there going, Christians, are you kidding me? The fault line is about to pop. Things are about ready to get crazy and nobody wants to be there. But every time behind that, there's always revival. Why? Because people want to know about the good news that we have within us as the world becomes a little bit chaotic. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 was feeling this way at that particular time. It was one of those fault line moments in the people of Israel. And God brings him up to his presence. Now imagine being in the presence of God and this is what he said, woe is me. 
Now, most scholars believe at this point probably that Isaiah wasn't a follower of Jesus or a follower of God. He was part of the people of Israel, but he probably wasn't a follower of God. He's standing before this God, and look what he says. I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Any one of us, I promise you, if we don't know Jesus, one day when we stand before him, we'll say the same thing. Woe is me. Why do we feel that way? Well, if you are somebody here who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, the reason you feel that way in front of this holy God is that the wrath of God remains on you. You know whether you cognitively or, 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 or consciously or subconsciously, you know, the Bible tells us in Romans, that you feel the reality of God's wrath still being on you. You know what Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, that you're children of wrath, that like the rest of mankind, you know that something is wrong with you. And this is what Isaiah is doing. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Because my, my lips are unclean and I'm in the people of unclean lips. What am I going to do? This is Paul's point. I get it that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Dot, dot, dot. It's just a humanity and a world that at the core of who we are, there's something wrong with us that only God can fix. And this is what happens in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's standing there wondering, what am I going to do? And here comes God. Now, he's not just the warrior. He's also the redeemer. As he's on his face, one of the seraphim flew to me. Now just imagine this for a second. An angel with six wings, two covering his eyes, two covering his feet, and two flying freaky and flying towards you. Now I would be wondering what in the world is about ready to happen. And not only that, but it says having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from an altar. Okay, again, not a good thing here. And then it says, he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and I love this. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You're good. In his brokenness and repentance in front of this God, what does God do? In this brokenness and repentance before God, he saves him. See, the one mark of God's people is always this idea of repentance. When I went to Poland one time, I'll never forget this. They didn't ever talk about the day I came to know Jesus or the day I got saved. They talked about the day that they repented. They talk about it from the standpoint of this is who I used to be, but God rescued me and I turned and I'm going the other direction. It was the day that he removed my guilt from me. Now we're going to talk about how that happens. But in this amazing reality, this is what Isaiah experiences. He was a man that had understood the wrath of God upon him. But in this beautiful moment, here comes God to the rescue. Because as we learned in 63.1, he's a God that's mighty to save. And there's a beauty to it is, is that those of us now that get touched by what God is going to do, when we stand before him one day, we won't stand before him as ones that deserve his wrath. We will stand before him now as ones that are his beloved children. That's crazy, and that is good news. But this idea of repentance requires that the, the wicked forsake his ways. It requires that ultimately now we understand what it is that God has done for us. In Isaiah 53, there's one way that God is going to eliminate evil, but then there's another way that God deals with evil. Look at Isaiah 
The suffering servant was one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with great grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But this one, this suffering servant, which again, spoiler alert, is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And all we like sheep have this tendency to go astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, not on us, but upon him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Vicious the way this is coming down, just like God's wrath, but instead now it's coming down on the suffering servant. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And it's for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no seat in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, though he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall be the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be acquainted or accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, all those now that come to God by faith, these ones are going to experience it. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's that the story of? Jesus rescuing sinners. Sometimes I hear people say, I got saved from my sin, which is true. I got saved from my heartache. I got saved from my low position. I got saved from all these difficulties. I got saved from my mental anguish. All those things are true. But that's not actually the major thing that we need to be saved from. The major thing that we need to be saved from is wrath. And the moment that you or I bend the knee to King Jesus and the work that he accomplished on the cross and in the tomb, something beautiful happens. All those transgressions that we've committed land on the Son. All the wrath that was owed us is given to him. And the only way that we will ever stand before this holy God one day is because Jesus, to use the words of the song, paid it all. If you're sitting here today and you know Jesus, can I just say this? You are good. You're good. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer sit in the wrath of the Father, but now we sit in his lavish love, which he will discipline us and he will bring heartache and he will allow us to live in this cold, hard and sometimes broken world. But he absolutely adores us. And when we stand before him one day, we will stand before him, not as ones deserving of his eternal wrath, but we will stand before him as ones forgiven because the wrath that came down on his son now allows for all of us in his son to be considered forgiven and whole and fully one of his. And by the way, that's great news. 
That's why I keep looking at us over and over again. Do you get who you are? Do you get it? And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I just say this, today is the best need to bend your knee to King Jesus. Today is the day to acknowledge this broken world of which you're a part and your own brokenness and your desperation as you sit just knowing this wrath of God is deserved towards you, this wrath of God that has brought so much dishonor and shame in your life, this wrath of God that's caused chaos over this whole world. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Bend your knee today. Come to this great king. Experience the love and the goodness of him. And when you get to verse 7, something amazing happens. And if you've got your Bibles, look down there because I, I don't want to click to it. But look at Isaiah 53, verse 7. And let me bring it to a close this way. Or excuse me, 63. It seems so strange in verse 6 for it to move from this idea of his wrath to his steadfast love. How in the world can he say, verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. How can he say that right after his wrath? He can say that because his wrath is put in context. I think there's two things that I, I, kind of boiling it down that I want you to see. God's wrath is coming. It cannot be stopped. This world is going to experience a God who's not having a bad day or a bad week or a, a bad year or a bad century or a bad millennium. They're coming and they're going to face a God who hates evil. But for all of us that know Jesus Christ, we're living in the reality where it's a God who's going to eliminate all evil from this world. I was meditating this morning on what's the world going to be like when he returns. I was trying to imagine what is it going to be like to never fear? What is it going to be like to live in a world where we're never going to experience loss? What's it going to be like to live in a world in which there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more cancer? What's it going to be like to live in a world in which there will be no more wars, there will be no more murders, there will be no more theft? What will it be like, and even this morning as I was walking out of my house, what will it be like to exit out of my house as I'm sitting there looking at my kiddos and wondering what's the world going to be like over the next 10 or 15 years for my kids and never having to worry about it when he comes back because every year that comes after will only be more of the glorious goodness and reign of Jesus Christ over this eternal new creation and new earth. What will it be like? What will it be like to never feel like I've got to pay somebody back for what they've done for me? What will it be like to finally experience this reality of knowing that I will never be hurt again? What will it be like 
It'll be like heaven. That's where everything is going, and it can't be stopped. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, in the name of the Father who adores you, a Father who is angry with sin, who's angry with evil, who intends to do away with it all, in the name of the Son who came and bore our evil, so that we might now rightly be with this God and enjoy him forever. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who grants us life and heals us from so much of the effects and the downside of a sinful fallen world. For those of you that know Jesus, would you go this week with a sense of excitement that King Jesus not only rules, but he is bringing about more and more of his good reign until I promise you one day with a trumpet and a shout, he is going to come back. He is going to establish all things according to his good rule. And finally, we as humans will realize all that he intended for us from the very beginning. Go this week in that. For those of you that don't know Jesus, I'll be up here, and I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to bend your knee to him. And so if I could have everybody stand up, the band's going to play us out. May all of you go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you.